I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're delighted to say this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Brewing Folk. Brewing Folk celebrates all the people who visit Verdant Brewing Co. and its tap room. White Rabbit will be collaborating with Verdant this year and we can highly recommend their beers. Find out more at brewingfolk.co or order yourself something to drink from verdantbring.co. For the last episode of season two of Songbook, I felt that my start of the episode recommendation had to be a real flaming beast of a book. So here we go. If you haven't read John Higgs' The KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band Who Burns a Million Pounds, then I suggest you crack this immediately. It's a proper breakneck romp through the world of one of Britain's best ever and most mind-bogglingly best-selling bands, and their story would be entertaining enough, but Higgs' fantastic writing leaves the mad energy up another level. There are very funny meditations on Jung, Doctor Who, postmodernism, theories of economic growth, the unreadable bullshit of record company press releases, the significance of the number 23, and so on, wrapped around the insane career trajectories of Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti. A journey deep into the heart of the very beast, as Higgs puts it. A 10th anniversary edition is coming out soon, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. So welcome for the last time this series to Songbook. I'm your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, published by White Rabbit Books. My guest today is an award-winning novelist, short story and non-fiction writer, whose last few years have been pretty mind-boggling too. But my guest career began in a much less hallowed place in the muddy, beer-stained trenches of music journalism. He wrote for The Melody Maker, Kerrang! and The Quietus, among other titles, interviewing the likes of Billy Corgan, Richard Hell, and marvellously Hanson, for whom he carved a robust defence after saying how easy it would be to kill them in his intro. I've read that piece and it was fantastic. Um, with his time with those modern-day heroes disappearing in the rearview mirror, his latest subject comes from a slightly different period, Lindisfarne in the 8th century. His new novel, Cuddy, an experimental retelling of the story of the hermit St Cuthbert, unofficial patron saint of the north of England, is out now and it's getting amazing reviews. My guest today is Benjamin Myers, although I like to call you Ben. Hi, Ben. Can I call you Ben or is that your music journalism yeah. moniker? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, only, it's only Benjamin when I'm trying to sound dead literary and that. But yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. We're delighted. Um, so how different is your life now to your days of music journalism, Ben? I want to know. Um, well, it's uh, calmer. It's more sane. <laughs> it's more sober. Um, I sleep better hours. Uh, being, a, being a sort of published novelist isn't without its stresses and anxieties, but it's a different set of stresses and anxieties to dealing with bands. Um, I mean, I had a, a pretty, I was in at the deep end, uh, starting with journalism and I fairly early on burned myself out quite quickly to the point where I was having to see a GP when I was about 23, cause I was throwing up blood and just in a complete state. And he told me I had to slow down a little bit. So a few years after that, <laughs> I slowed down a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I, this, 
the thing about music journalism is that it's it taught me a discipline that you have to you have to write and you have to believe in what you're writing and you have to stick to deadlines. So I, I always credit my sort of journalistic days with sort of shaping me as a as a novelist today, really. And you know, you started in the late 1990s, which was um, kind of strange time because it was sort of post Britpop, pre the madness of the you know, libertines. Oh, I know you wrote about in the early days as well. Um, what are your favourite memories of those times? You know, aside from the grim <laughs> memories of those times that you've just mentioned. It, well, it was a it, yeah, it was a really strange time. I I started at Melody Maker. Well, I wrote for some local magazines and fanzines from about 1994, and then in 1995, I had a very brief stint. I did two internships at News of the World because I was toying with the idea of being a a, a a journalist, you know, on on newspapers in London. And I had a friend of a friend worked in the mailroom at News of the World. And I did some time there and it was absolutely horrendous and the people were just vile and everything that you think that you know about the tabloids back then is true. Uh, Piers Morgan was the editor and, and it was just horrible, but really well paid. Um, but after about two or three weeks, I thought I would rather do anything with my life than work somewhere like this. Um, so the following year I did an internship at Melody Maker 1996 and then I was kind of off really. I, I started writing for them freelancing straight away at the age of 20. But um, it was a, it was a strange time because there was loads of money floating about for bands mm. were getting signed. Britpop had just peaked really. And then in 1997 I was became a staff writer literally the week after I finished university. I mean, it was the luckiest break anyone's ever had really because I, I would still contest that I don't think I could really write and I didn't know much about music but I was I was keen <laughs> and I, I was reliable and I always got the drinks in if I could the first couple of years at Melody Maker was just a complete whirlwind um I went from living in a terraced house in Luton where I was a student to living in a squat in South London to going to Hollywood, Beverly Hills, going to New York, going to, you know, Spain, Denmark, then straight from Ross Kilda Festival in Denmark to Glastonbury, and then a week or two later, Tea in the Park, then Reading Festival, and then New York again, then back home, and then to Miami. It just went like that, um, and it was amazing. It was just a, com it's a complete blur, and it was before, it was before I was really on the internet so a lot of it just exists in my mind or in the pieces that i wrote yeah. um but yeah it was just a just a mad roller coaster of um adventures with pop with like pop stars and rock stars that i'd grown up liking i mean the brit pop thing slightly misleading really because that was the sort of uh, dominant force in music at the time but there was so much other good stuff going on like trip hop and jungle and lots of good hip-hop coming out um but yeah, I just loved it at Melody Maker. Um, but at the same time, it was entering the last days, the last days of the, the life of the newspaper, but also the last days of the music industry as it was. I could see it coming. So in 1999, I resigned from my job and I had a lot of friends who I'd met at gigs who worked for Kerrang, uh, including people like Phil Alexander, the editor. So I had a secret meeting with Kerrang and I said, if you can give me enough 
freelance work. I'd I'd love to work for you. Um, so I did. Uh, I, I retired from a job at 23 and I've never had a proper job since. I thought Kerrang might somehow be, I don't know, I thought maybe it might be a bit less exhausting, but th that was ridiculous because then suddenly I was on tour with Slipknot and Motorhead and Ozzy Osbourne and, you know, all that stuff uh, at the drive-in, Rage Against the Machine, just all, all these noisy, frantic bands. So I had like seven or eight years of, of that. But the, the good thing about that world is that those bands were selling even more records. You know, Blur sold records, but they didn't sell tons in America, whereas some of the American bands I was in were selling five or 10 million records. So they were more than happy to send over some idiot from London to hang around LA for a week just to do a one hour interview. So that was, that was my, <laughs> my twenties really. That's the long answer. Wow. Yeah. I, I started a, 20 years ago as a music journalist, 2003, late 2003. So I was at the, you know, Napster had uh, bitten by that point and everything, the money was running out. So, uh, yeah, you got in there at the right time. Saw the decline. I got a taste of the glory years. And also there was still a lot of the old guard from NME and Melody Maker were around. People who had been hanging around with the Sex Pistols and the Clash or whoever, which was like exciting to me because it was a link to the past. So I saw that world and then... But then next thing I knew, the kind of music industry collapsed. Melody Maker closed and Select closed and it all the, the cards started falling, really. So, mm. yeah, I had one, one foot in both worlds, really. But I was always writing fiction at the same time as well. That was that was my main goal in life was to publish novels. Fantastic. And, you know, the, you could have made the sort of transition, as it were, you know, with your first novel, Richard, that came out in 2010, you know, which is about Richie Edwards, the Manic Street Preachers. Was that a book that had been with you for a little while? Um, or, you know, did it feel like a good way to kind of make that transition to fiction by writing about music? Or was it just a subject that had grabbed you? Well, I've written a, quite a few other attempts at novels, and I had actually had one out before that, which was a very low-key underground thing. Um, but it, yeah, I, I, I don't know. With with Richard, it was just a, a, an idea that I was discussing, and I just decided to do it there and then. And it coincided with me, like I wrote it, and then I left London. And as soon as I moved back up north, I got this book deal for Richard. So suddenly, I was kind of it's like that thing in The Sopranos or The Godfather or whatever it's from. You know, just when you you're out, they pull you back in. So it's like suddenly pulled back into the music world with but 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 in the mainstream publishing side of it and it was a it was a very strange novel to write for obvious reasons and the reaction was quite strong it was like loved by some people and really hated by some um but it, yeah it was a transitional thing really i i already had ideas for things that were pure fiction um, and I just kept plugging away. And even when I moved back up north, I was still uh, freelancing for people like Mojo uh, and The Quietus and The Guardian and The New Statesman. But because I wasn't living in London, I'd stepped out of the kind of mayhem of the, the gig circuit and was able mm. to live a lot more cheaply and kind of breathe out a bit and focus more on, on the fiction, which was something I'd been working towards for years. But just couldn't quite commit to it because I was always off, you know, uh, abroad or on tour or just following bands around. I wanted to ask you what writing novels gives you as a writer that writing about music didn't give you as a writer. It's 
total freedom writing a novel. The, the way I tend to work is I have, I have a few ideas on the go and think about them. And there's usually one emerges as the one I want to pursue. And then, I, and then I write it and I don't really show anyone anything. I might tell my agent about it. Um, but I, I might, in the case of my latest novel, Cuddy, I spent four years researching and writing it. And whenever anyone asked what I was writing about, I would just say, I'm writing a novel inspired by St. Cuthbert. And that was that. Um, so it's total freedom to create until I hand it in and then it becomes a collaborative process with an editor and a designer and sub-editors. Whereas with music journalism, there's very few places where you, where I felt free, um, particularly magazines, because there's always a house style. Yeah. I've actually just, I've actually just done a bit of music journalism for the quietest. I've written a 3000 word essay on, uh, you suffer the one second long song by Napalm Death. Yes. Yes. I'm going to mention that. Yeah. Well, so no magazine would publish that. I, I know they wouldn't. <laughs> um, but I just emailed John uh, at The Quietus and said, I've written this thing. It's about kind of napalm death and it's about grindcore and it's about anxiety and it's about Francis Bacon and uh, this and that. <laughs> he said, send it over. And then he replies, you know, yeah, yeah, great. We'll run it. And that, that was that. Whereas if you write for even right, you know, back at Melody Maker or Kerrang, I've written for Metal Hammer and Q and Mojo. They all have yeah. different house styles. You're really constrained by word counts. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a totally different process, but in fiction, you get to play God. You're the king of your own kingdom. And when you write, you know, do you have a routine or are you somebody who just, has you know weeks of insanity and um or are you you know nine to five <laughs> i'm quite disciplined I, I i'm aware that most people are out there in the world doing what i call real jobs things that kind of matter and they're getting out of bed in the morning so i feel like i need to feel at least part of society by getting up and doing something so i tend to i tend to work office hours it doesn't mean I write from, I mean, I, I start, I say, like, you know, 10, 10 to 6, but I won't be writing fiction for those eight hours. I might do an hour or two, and there's, there's a surprising amount of admin and other work. Um, but sometimes when I get into the flow of a book, I can spend all day, every day for weeks to the point where I'm almost sort of only just present in the real world because, you know, a lot of my mind is elsewhere. A lot of my fiction's set in the past, so I'm spending a lot of time in the past in my head. Um, but yeah, I, I do that, and I, I, I try and I try and work, and I, I go out and walk every day, or in the afternoon or evening, I try and do some exercise. I'm quite clean living. I don't drink or smoke or do drugs, so there is a that helps with the discipline. I think um, most of all, I just enjoy writing. I think if the enjoyment goes, it's gonna it'll be really hard for me to continue. But I really love that initial period of writing and then editing it the the the, the total uh the, the hard part is when it comes out and when you have to talk about it and promote it and put yourself out there because it's very difficult to make sense of your own projects um and also when you're not i'm not a huge extrovert so it's quite hard doing that public facing stuff i guess. i mean i've got a big mouth but i've got no huge desire to be in the spotlight. Oh well, that, if you've, we feel very honoured that you've uh, decided to do songbook. I've um, I've just started Cuddy, and just oh, it's 
very exciting. I think you get when a lot of music journalists of a certain age kind of, uh, you know, who maybe have been interested in the, you know, mythologies that we've created around people in the past as fans or as writers, you know, kind of uh, some of it a bit embarrassing, kind of think about, you know, older stories and older characters and guess really fascinating. Yeah, I definitely carry part of that music journalist inside myself. And this book, you know, was inspired by St. Cuthbert, who died in the seventh century. But there's still a part of me is like treating him as if he was some front man in a band today in terms of, you know, what's the, what's the real story here? What does he stand for? What does he represent? Why are people interested? So they, although it's, people reading might not see that, my years in the rock trenches of uh, have given have taught me something, I think. Brilliant. So, right, the questions I ask everybody. Ben, the first music act or artist that you loved, who were they or them? Well, the first, well, there was three really, but the first memory was of the police. Um, I was in about 1980, I think it was, when I was four years old. I, I saw a, I saw them on TV or something. I was quite fascinated. There was three men and they'd all bleached the hair the same colour. Um, so I went to my local record shop and I couldn't reach the counter. I was so small and I said, have you got message in a bottle by the police uh and they said no and i burst into tears so <laughs> the, the guy in the record shop in durham picked me up and put me on the counter and put some headphones on and played me uh walking on the moon instead and so i bought that that was my first single um i was quite i think i was quite fascinated as well because one of my teachers at school used to live with sting uh, but he wouldn't talk about it. He was his flatmate. And um, and then as I got a bit older, I was even more fascinated by the fact that Sting was a Geordie from, you know, from close to where I'm from, but yet sang in a really inappropriate Jamaican accent. Um, <laughs> so I'm really not a fan of the police, but they were my, they, they piqued my interest. And I also around the same time saw a photo of Gary Newman. And that was like a true sort of, sudden infatuation because he looked like an alien uh, similar mm. to how people probably reacted to Bowie when they first saw him um and weirdly like I, I never heard Gary Newman I just saw a photo and thought he's brilliant and then quite I, I have this thing where in life I always think I see famous people walking along the street so I'll be walking along a, a village in Yorkshire and I'll say to Adele my wife oh look there's Donald Sutherland and of course, it's not Donald Sutherland. So it's a bit of a running joke that I always think I see, oh, look, there's Phil Collins in in uh, Lidl. But we were in Edinburgh recently for my birthday and we pulled, we're in a taxi and we pulled up at the traffic lights and I just looked to my left and went, oh, look, there's Gary Newman in his car. And uh, and it was Gary Newman in his car. Shut up. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, and obviously he was in his car, but we didn't sing cars because we're not that crass. Um so yeah, they, they, those were my first pop interests, and also Shaka Khan. I saw her doing um, her cover version of Prince's "I Feel for You" in about 1984, and that just stirred some sort of desire in me. I think so. Those were the three tr trigger trigger points for me in pop music. Oh, brilliant! That is so weird about that thing you have with Adele. Um, uh, I should say Adele Stripe, who's a brilliant writer herself. Who was the first music writer you loved? I'm intrigued to see whether any of your, you know, mentors or any of the writers you knew at the Melody Maker, the older writers, um, fall into this area. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was mu- music press for me rather than music books. Um, it, when I was a kid, I read my sister's copies of Just 17, which wasn't a music mag, but it was kind of an insight into the teen world. And then I was reading my brother's copy of Kerrang!, um, although Kerrang was probably more about the personalities of the rock stars rather than the writers, I would say. So then at the start of the nineties, I got into enemy and melody maker. And, um, I think reading Everett true writing about grunge was quite, uh, interesting and exciting to me because I, I, I realized that he decided fairly early on that he was going to insert himself into every story. And whenever he interviewed a band who were a bit boring, and as you and I both know, Jude, a lot of bands are can be quite boring, and you and it's a task that's the journalist's task task to make them interesting. So I think Everett encountered some boring bands and decided to write about himself instead, which was really frustrating and annoying sometimes, but it was also quite thrilling because it opened up the possibilities of music writing to me. Mm. And he wasn't the first person to do that, you know. I think Lester Bangs and people like that were doing it. So yeah, Everett's writing, and he he was very generous and kind to me when I was a work experience lad a few years later, and it was the time of um, Catelyn Moran, Simon Price, David Stubbs. Um, these were all at Melody Maker, and there was a, a writer called Carol Clerk who was the news editor. And Carol, for for, for everyone anyone who knew her, she's she's not around anymore, sadly. Carol was like this northern irish force of nature who'd been around doing music she started in belfast i think and then came over and worked in london then worked at the maker and she knew she knew all the hardest punk bands uh she knew all the gangsters in east london she knew all the mad hawkwind type bands she was on really good relations with like oasis and people like that and she was about five foot tall she smoked like a chimney drank everyone under the table and was just absolutely brilliant. And she she was really kind to me. She gave me lots of work as a keen young news reporter and would just send me off. And uh, so there's people like her and like Carol's probably not one of the most prominent names in 80s and 90s music journalism, but I think people who encountered her remembered her. She was just like wilder than the bands and absolutely brilliant. And um, so it was people like that. And also at NME, which you know, was a rival paper to the maker. I really like the writing of Sylvia Patterson. Yeah. Who, uh, who I got to know as well, actually. And 
and and Simon Williams at the time, they were like the two people at NME who were actually nice to me because uh, a lot of NME writers were sniffy about Melody Maker people. But Sylvia let me sleep on a floor the first night I met her. And um, yeah, so it was, it was that generation as well. People like Stephen Wells, I guess, I, I liked his writing. I didn't always agree with a lot of these writers, but there was an, a, an energy to them that I, that I enjoyed. Mm. Oh, fantastic. It's lovely to hear Carol Clark mentioned as well. She was uh, very kind to me a few times in my early days. And Sylvia is Sylvia's a writer that should be praised more. So it's lovely to hear about her. Sylvia, when I, when I knew her in the 90s, was absolutely wild as well and just like brilliant to be around. Because that, that, that was something I learned from her and Carol was that it's not just about your writing. It's about yourself getting involved and, you know, just placing yourself in the eye of the storm really so so yeah yeah absolutely and um yeah I should say this point Sylvia's um well first book um I'm not with the band is absolutely brilliant and everybody should read it um uh first music book um I was thinking about this and I, I was I was struggling because I've, I've read a lot of music books over the years uh and I probably I remember reading something called like I remember some books about metal in the eighties, which were more picture led. Um, Cause I was a bit of a, I was a skater and I was in a punk and I was in a metal, but the first book, and this is probably an o obvious choice, but I think it bears, you know, repeating. Cause I know that uh, Adele, my wife <laughs> who has appeared on this podcast also chose it. And that's England's dreaming by John Savage. When we met, we both realized we had these, each had a, t a tatty copy of it. And, I bought it in 1993 or four, and it was coincided with my first sort of um, trips down to London where I'd go and sleep on the floor of a squat and buy a travel card and just wander around London all week, getting to know, getting to know it. And rather than the A to Z, I carried a copy of England's Dreaming and John Savage's sort of depiction of punk and the, the broader social context of it just opened the city up to me in a way that I was really glad of. It was like a alternative history of, of, uh, you know, Notting Hill and Kensington and the West End and Soho and North London. It just, um, it's just a brilliant book. And it also taught me that, you know, music writing could be intellectual and it can be mo about more than music. It can be about politics and, uh, fashion and, you know, cultural climate, I think. So, yeah, England's Dreaming was the one that really blew my mind, I think. So today's episode subject was your choice as well, and it's an absolute cracker, or I should say their crackers as we're squeezing two books in, slightly cheating. But Julian Cope's Head On slash Repossessed, two books together, were published together in 2005. So if you're listening, you have to forgive us. So these books are the two parts of Julian Cope's autobiography, taking us from his account of the Liverpool punk scene to his solo years in America in the 1980s. I have to confess, I hadn't read these before, which is a terrible confession to make as somebody who, you know, hosts a music books podcast. Oh my God, they are so brilliant. Um, I'm going to begin our discussion with um, your words, actually, Ben, your summing up of Cope from a piece you wrote for The Guardian in 2008, because I just love this. Cope embodies everything you want from an archetypal rock star, a briefly credible and highly creative post-punk phase, see Tear Drop Explode circa 1978 to 1981, a delusional Messiah Odin Dionysus complex, insane levels of drug taking, 
He once described appearing on top of the pops wearing a motel room pillowcase, tripping off his gourd. The inevitable wilderness years, during which he filled his time with new pursuits, including toy car collecting and speed walking. Terrible dress sense, wild ambition, eccentricity, good looks, surprise pop success with Will Shut Your Mouth, interesting lyrics, a plummy accent, a self-contained musical career, a far-flung cult following, and a complete dedication to all things esoteric. All that is missing is a pair of leather trousers. Oh, wait, those were the two. <laughs> so, Ben, tell me when you first, you know, came across these books. Um, <laughs> I'd, for- I'd forgotten about that piece that, I, that you just quoted, actually. Um, I, I usually can't stand reading anything I've written in the past. But, um, well, I I first saw Julian Cope on, I think, an episode of Wogan when he did World Shut Your Mouth, which must have been about, 86 or 87 so I was 10 or 11 and he had leather trousers on and he had that mic stand that he could actually stand on and like literally lean into and I just yeah. thought who's this Burke he's brilliant um <laughs> but for whatever reason I wasn't a huge teardrops fan because it was a little bit before my time um but yes yeah, so it wasn't until I was about 30 that I read Head On and Repossessed and massively got into them. Head On, I should say, it was the first book which came out in 94, which is subtitled Memories of the Liverpool Punk Scene and the Story of the Teardrop Explodes, 1976 to 82. And then in 1999, he wrote Repossessed, which covers his solo years throughout the 80s. It's called Repossessed Shamanic Depressions in Tamworth and London, 1983 to 1989. Amazing um, subtitle. <laughs> it kind of tells you what, what you're getting. But um, yeah, I must have read them when I was about 30. So that was, I'm 47 now. Um, and I don't know why I hadn't read them before, but I think actually, I've just remembered in the late 90s, I went on some radio show and I, and I passed him in the corridor. He was on after me. And he was wearing like a uh, like a bright sort of luminous binman's jacket, purple leggings. And he had really long hair tied back, but an undercoat shaved on both sides. And at the time, I just thought, my God, he looks absolutely terrible. Um, so maybe that put me off him at the time, his, his, his lack of dress sense. But when I finally read the books straight away, I was just like, these are my favorite reads music reads ever and they remain so and i think the 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 reason why is because i think deep down i've myself i've never really been able to take musicians seriously and therefore i've never been able to take music journalism seriously mm-hmm. like my 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 angle was that i was always interested in the people making the music more than i was the music and some people like prop hardcore music fans might get offended by that, but I just wanted to know about these people and why they were living their lives they lived. And some of my favorite stories or interviews are with either people who have been massive successes or people who've been like glorious failures. Some of the failures are the best stories. And I realized in um, Head On that Julian Cope has this, he he understands implicitly the absurdity of rock and roll and the idiocy of the pop star as an iconic figure. Yeah. Um, so he can laugh at himself. But at the same time, and, and that's, a, that's quite a rare ability to laugh at yourself. Um, but at the same time, he's also really pompous and he, he displays 
the archetypal symptoms of the egotistical frontman, despite he would probably disagree, but it's 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 evident in his books. So on the one hand, he's really funny, and there's no bigger sort of fool, and he is like a fool. He's like a court jester. There's no bigger fool in his books than himself. But yeah. he never apologizes for that. And in fact, in the second book, Repossessed, he cranks that sort of egotism up to, to new levels. So, you know, I've read a lot of books by musicians and they often leave out the dirt or they leave out anything that makes them look too bad. Whereas he did not leave anything out. And the other factor about these books is that he starts out as a Puritan in... There's a little section I marked here where in, um, what was it? In 1979, he, he walked into the rehearsal room and one of the teardrops, a couple of the teardrops were sharing a joint and he got really angry. He said, hey man, what's that? That's a fucking joint. That's a fucking hippie joint, you bloody hippie. Fucking hell. I mean, fuck. <laughs> and a few pages later, he's dropping acid for the next 10 years. <laughs> And at one point, he's, he was taking LSD every day. So he went from puritanism, pur, puritanical, this pur, puritanical streak to being the most office head guy in Britain in the early 80s, I think. So, you know, there's, there's, these books have a lot going for them. Yeah, he's such a fascinating individual. You know, as you said, it was written, um, well, it was published in 1994, but it was written in 1989. Um, and the introduction to the book talked a bit about the circumstances in which it was put together. Cope was, you know, quoting him, in a sulk and refusing to record any more music after Clive Banks of Island Records had refused to release his Skellington album because he hated it so much. Um, as a result, uh, Julian Cope, you know, poured all this information, as he puts it, into a word processor. Um, a couple of months after he'd started writing Head On, his friend Peter Freitas, the drummer for Echo and the Bunnyman, was killed in a motorbike accident. And his friendship with Pete is talked about in Repossessed. Um, but Cope writes in that intro, his death shattered me and appears to have predicated the complete change in direction which my life then took. And if you look at, you know, Julian Cope's output in the 1990s, you know, aside from the records, you've got two uh, volumes of autobiography. You've got The Modern Antiquarian, which is this absolute Bible um, about, you know, standing stones um, in, in in Britain. He went on to write the megalithic European in the 2000s. He became this, you know, <laughs> this kind of insane sage in some ways, but while yeah. also, as you say, kind of having this combination of seriousness and a sense of his own ridiculousness but um i thought his early years the way he documents his early years in tamworth a town of clones um while he's desperate to join the weird scene heads in new york really interesting and of course i was interested in his um you know birth in the south um, wales valleys and the effect that yeah. abavan had on him as a child it, it, the abavan disaster happened on his ninth birthday a couple of miles away from where his maternal grandparents lived and um you know these little bits of horror that kind of you know influenced him as he was growing up and I kept as I was reading it I was thinking oh I know Ben Myers a novelist who uh you know who is not averse to you know the grimmer moments of life <laughs> is spotting all his connections in there yeah yeah I mean there's there's a lot of kind of uh, kind of extremes going on really with uh Julian Cope I, I, I like a lot of the stuff in <clears throat> in head-on which documents his 
the, the important thing is he he moves from the Midlands and he's a nice middle class boy called Julian with very clean hair and he moves to Liverpool to the uni and kind of embeds himself in the punk slash post punk scene of Liverpool, which in some ways was, pro- was you know maybe as exciting as Manchester and London at the time. And he, he kind of has these early dalliances and he forms a band called the Crucial Three with Pete Wiley and Ian McCulloch. Um, yeah. So he, he's briefly like a, a Clash type punk, but he soon kind of drops that because he's, he's into Scott Walker and The Seeds, Love, Perubu, 13th Floor Elevators. And I think Liverpool has always had that psychedelic undertow you know, it's there in a, it's yeah, it's there in you know like the Lars and the Coral and the Zootons and loads of bands which came after. But it, it was there in the seventies as well. And so, so like Kopi became part of this Liverpool scene to the point where, he, like, if you watch interviews with him later, he drops in and out of this Scouse accent while still mm. being middle class Julian. And I like what he writes about because it's. There's a lot of alpha males strutting around Liverpool at that time. People like Bill Drummond, who ran Zoo Records and mm. uh, released the Teardrops early records and the Bunny Men's records. And you've got Ian McCulloch, who uh, Cope is friends with initially, but soon comes to absolutely view as a nemesis and a rival. And that's some of the best parts of the book, is his, oh, his, yeah. petty, his petty bitterness. And, you know, I, d- I do know front men in bands who are like that. If I, There's a lot of bands, if I sit down and talk about music to them and I'll say, have you heard this record? And they'll automatically be dismissive if it's a, if it's a contemporary band because they see everyone as a rival. And there's a bit in Head On where <clears throat> the Teardrops haven't signed a deal, but the Bunny Men have. And Kopi has got this sort of, he's putting together this look of military fatigues and army wear and he walks into the zoo records office one day and he sees all this military netting strung everywhere and he thinks he thinks it's for his band but actually bill drummond has bought it and stolen their look for the bunny men's tour and who who were signed and cope is just absolutely in bits he cries all day and then he says i wished evil and mayhem and destruction on each individual bunny man now Mac was going to have the best stage set ever. The guy who laughed at my camo and walked around in funky new gear was going on tour in my outfits. Well, fuck my shit, McCulloch. I've written that down in my notes to read out because that bit is just hilarious. And that, I, obviously I mentioned Bill Drummond at the top of the podcast with the KLF book by John Higgs, but kind of it's such a brilliant kind of encapsulation of that kind of bitterness and rivalry but also his humor to just put all this out there yeah he puts it out there and he re- and he, re- he renames them echo and the bunny droppings yeah. which <laughs> is like what you'd hear in a junior school playground but he sticks with it so there's a lot of really inane childish uh you know jibes in his writing which again i like because uh i'm a snide fucker as well so <laughs> yeah. very entertaining and he's a great writer, you know, as well. Um, so good writing about music. There's a, a gig he goes to, which is um, The Slits and Subway Sex and The Clash. 
Um, and he's talking about, you know, him dancing, you know, the clash, however, suggested unlimited nuclear war, he says, as he's you know, dancing around. Um, I love this line. Television's little Johnny Jewel made the New York doll sound like yes. <laughs> I love um, just his connection when he's getting into, you know, kind of things that are on the kind of fringes of punk or kind of a, stuff from America just after he got into the Sex Pistols. Um, and his writing about, um, you know, Ian Curtis is quite lovely as well. There's not many mentions of him, but those jumped out on me. You know, he talks yeah. about um, Curtis having this deep, sad, Iggy Pop lament quality when he sang, but he smoked in the most gentle, high-pitched Manchester accent. You know, these little lines that kind of reveal so much about different people and, you know, the moment when, um, you know, he finds out, you know, Ian Curtis is dead, he's on stage and it's kind of a very brief moment in the book, but just his little insight into, you know, how closely linked you know, those worlds were, you know, obviously people on touring circuits, different managers being in touch with people, you know. That stuff really stands up as well, actually. For a book that was written in the 80s, I would say that a lot, a lot of his reference points are still quite right on today, if you know what I mean. Like, one of the few contemporary bands he likes other than Joy Division is The Fall. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he despises you too. You know, I saw an interview where he talks about, he's asked, what is your idea of hell and he just said you too on a loop um so you know a lot of his references uh, i would agree with and they haven't dated like the stuff he liked and championed then history has shown is the good stuff really so for all his sort of tomfoolery and clownishness he, he does have a really a really he has good taste and and his writing as you say about music is is really good it's it's better than a lot of music critics i would say yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a few insights from his early life as well that are just brilliant. When he he's been, you know, basically bullied um, after being Oliver in the school play, which I loved that, you know, little insight. Um, and these, you know, awful blokes, you know, saying Oliver, give us a kiss, and he does give them a kiss, and that's something that kind of absolutely changes the way he thinks about the world, and he he doesn't give a shit about being bullied anymore about his, you know, uh, him being this, you know boy with a lovely accent called Julian who you know has elements of camp about him um and he talks about having blinding flashes as a young person there was instance when something you'd always accept as a world truth is suddenly revealed as being false he really captures you know being young you know there's lots of girls there's lots of sex and how that's written about you know you've some of this stuff it probably wouldn't you know pass muster today some of it but I thought it was brilliant it's kind of completely honest yeah. um about you know those early experiences you might have and kind of the when you're young and days feel like they go on forever and obviously you know the nights end at you know 10 in the morning there's just so much of that that kind of brings that alive and you get a sense of the person behind you know the guy who eventually ends up you know on top of the pops which seems kind of quite crazy yeah and he I mean I would urge anyone listening to this to to look up some of the clips on YouTube it's all there but yeah some of the top Top of the Pops appearances he writes about in um, Head On and Repossessed. Yeah. Uh, he, he he is tripping on acid on at least one occasion, and I don't think many people would have done that on Top of the Pops. And I think, as <laughs> I, I, I mentioned in the piece that you quoted that uh, did for the Guardian, he was in a he was in a motel room hotel room before Top of the Pops, and he had nothing to wear, so he took the p pillowcase off the pillow, cut two holes for the arms in it, and wore it. And looked really terrible, <laughs> but still did it. And um, and there's also something which 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 you and I discussed sort of off air um, 
there's an amazing interview on a program called Star Test. Yes. Which which some people might remember as a kind of I think was it Channel Four? It was like pre-internet. Was, yeah. Um and he he's on there in nineteen eighty-nine, where the, the the setup is basically someone is interviewed by a screen or a computer. They get to choose the categories and they sort of ask these questions quite robotically. But he is brilliant on it. I mean, he's gurning and he has all these strange mannerisms and I would say he's definitely on something, but yet he's articulate and he's interesting and he's original and he's quite adorable, really. He's like a, he's like a bouncy puppy dog. Um, it's, so it's, it's very hard to truly dislike him, even when he's been a complete idiot to other people. And, (laughs) and there's definitely some of that in repossessed where he, goes through a lot of musicians and treats his manager badly and record deals come and go. But he also makes some interesting decisions. Um, you know, in the early 80s, the Teardrops and the Bunny Men, they were contemporaries, really, of U2. And to an extent, Duran Duran and bands like that, they could have really pursued the pop route and I think Julian Cope was sort of good looking enough and whatever charismatic enough to have been a pop star, but he was so obsessed with psychedelia and the sort of outliers of music like Scott Walker, that it was never going to be a real choice for him. He would always choose the, the cool route rather than the commercial route. And he stayed true to that to this day, which, which I, I admire. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, Repossessed is a bit of a different, you know, read kind of, um, you know, there's, as I said, the kind of um, the incidents with Pete DeFratis, um, the Bunnyman's drummer, kind of, you know, calling up from America. <laughs> Some of those bits are very peculiar, but um, you sort of just allow yourself to, you know, wander into Julian Cobb's mind. And, you know, he's, as I said, he's such a good writer. You'll allow him to take you anywhere, really. <laughs> Yeah, there's and and there's anecdotes on every page. I would say head on, <clears throat> head on is the trip, and repossessed is the come down really, because <laughs> after the, the teardrop, he split the teardrops himself in 1982, and they were massively in debt, and he took on the burden of that debt. These are the things you don't hear so much from pop stars, but he he, he writes about it. And he kind of retreated into this um, sort of Howard Hughes-like existence with Dory and his wife, and they, he went really peculiar. Um, at one point, he gets obsessed with collecting toy cars. So he writes at great length about toy cars. And then at another point, he gets really obsessed with speed walking. Yeah, I love so that bit. He's back at Tamworth in the Midlands where he grew up the burnt out rock star and he part of his sort of him rebuilding himself is that he gets into speed walking every night around the village and the perimeter gets bigger and bigger and i've just got images of the locals or farmers or whatever out and seeing this tall lolloping mad guy in his leather trousers speed walk (laughs) around the village every night so he, he has these real uh sort of fads and obsessions which again, I can kind of relate to because I'm very, I get into one thing for six months and I do it all the time and then I drop it. I guess it's addictive behavior. Um, 
so I can kind of relate to him. He, he's like, you know, he's sick of music, sick of bands. So he got into toy cars instead. Or, But he was in a bad way. He was barricading himself in the house and couldn't answer yeah. the door because he was so paranoid. And But then gradually he comes out of it and actually has some solo hits, which are a bigger success than the teardrops. And that's all documented in, in Repossessed, really, yeah. in, in, in fine detail. I hope he's kept up the speed walking. I have to say, you know, you know, I know he lives in uh, Wiltshire now, and uh, I, a couple of years ago, went with some friends on a, you know, your classic trip to, you know, the Long Barrows and the Stone Circles and everything. And we did try and f- work out where Julian Cope's house was, but we couldn't find it. If we'd seen him speed walking, that would have made our trip. I think that would have been brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen him a few times over the years play, and it was kind of everything I hoped him to be. Uh, I mean, he was dressed, you know, it's more his latter-day sort of Hell's Angel, Viking warrior sort of look with sort of elbow-length leather gloves, big peaked hat, like a sort of biker Viking without a bike or a boat. (laughs) And uh, still pretty out there, but, you know, he can still write. And I just, I, I like the trajectory of someone who has just gone... Probably at the age of about twenty five, gone now. Nah, I'm not. I'm not doing this. I'm not Spandau Ballet. I am a Neolithic antiquarian scholar. I'm going to pursue that for a few years, and yeah. he did, and he, he did it really well. And the the modern antiquarian is like a bible in our house. You know, we we go and visit a lot of the locations he's written about. So, thank you, Julian. Yeah, that is a book that I don't have, and I obviously look for it a lot, but it is. Very expensive these days when it turns up. Um, he also has written lots of other great things. Krautrock Sampler was an absolute bible. In I remember a, a house I had with an old boyfriend in the early two thousands. We could like quote bits to each other, just nuts. Um, uh, Copendium, which came out kind of um, about ten years ago now, is fantastic. You know he's 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 written lots of fantastic things, and obviously he's still releasing music when he fancies it. But um, you know probably just spending a lot lot of time, you know, communing with Mother Earth. <laughs> I do, I do wonder about the, the, the kind of long-term effects of you know, doing acid every day. Uh, I mean, you can if, if people go and watch that the, the Star Test interview, I think you can see the effects of it. So I just wonder how he is now, and I hope he's, hope he's doing well. But, you know, he's, he's, he's done some amazing books, and he's done some really interesting solo records. Yes. And not everything he puts out as necessarily good but there's always there's if it's not good it at least makes me laugh even just some of the song titles and album titles and he's a man on a mission he's a he's a unique english eccentric and we always need more of them yeah definitely which albums would you recommend um what solo ones or yeah well, just the, there's a few. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm the world's worst mu- music journalist because most of my favourite albums are best ofs. Um, <laughs> so if you say what's your favourite Velvet Underground, it'll be the best of the Velvet Underground. But there's a few good starting points. There's a, like Island Records did some sort of collected works of the Teardrops, who because they were a little bit hit and miss as a band, but their good stuff is really good, and some of their Peel session stuff was was really good. Uh, a lot of Cope's late 80s records I like. They're kind of a bit dated on the production, 
but there's some real sort of psychedelic pop melodies in there. And, it, and it, this was the time when he was getting in the charts and sort of cool headlining Reading Festival. I've got a little bit lost with some of his later work. Um, but any of it's worth picking up and having a listen, I think. There's always something, there's always a surprise on there. Definitely. And there's um, just in the last week, there was um, the announcement that there's uh, a box set of recordings and rarities by T-Drop Explodes coming out, actually, called Culture Bunker. Um, so we'll be looking out for that when it comes out as well. So thank you, Ben, because I've absolutely been loving them. They're brilliant. Recommend them to anyone. Head On Repossessed as a couple are published by Element. Um, so as we move to the end of the podcast, do you have any recommendations for other books, Ben? Yeah, I've got I've got a pile here. Actually, I might just mention a couple. I thought I would mention things that probably haven't made it onto the podcast, or or listeners may not know about. One is a book called Hardcore Logo by Michael Turner. Um, it came out in Canada in the late nineties, and it's the story of a fictional band who were a punk band in the seventies, and they they reform in the early nineties. They they called Hardcore Logo. And the book is actually told in po poetic verse, not rhyming poetry, but kind of free verse. And it's far better than it sounds in the description. And there's a really good adaptation of it. Um, and it's basically about what happens when a band reform and they tour through Canada through a freezing cold winter and all the insecurities and resentments of the past resurface. And I've never read a book like it. It's it's really good, and the film's really good, and I think it's up there on YouTube. So um, I would recommend that. Um, about 20 years ago, I was bought a book by a friend called The Truth About Rock Music by Dr. Hugh Pyle. Uh, <laughs> Hugh Pyle uh, was a pastor at the Central Baptist Church in Florida. And it's basically a, a sort of manifesto against everything that's wrong with rock music this oh, is like brilliant. a real 80s pmrc era it's full of bible quotes and it's full of rants about how satanic uh kiss and cheap trick and motley crew are <laughs> um and alice cooper and it's a really fun read uh about a guy that just shows you the the power of rock music to really disturb the the straits man <laughs> so that's a good book <laughs> Um, I just recently read a book called Muse Odalisque Handmaiden, uh, the subtitle A Girl's Life in the Incredible String Band by Rose Simpson. And I'm really fascinated with the Incredible String Band and I'm fascinated with that folk rock period, but also the role mm -hmm. of women in folk music, which has just been massively written out of the history books, I think. People like Beverly Martin and yeah. Linda Linda Thompson, Sandy Denny, but um, Rose Simpson kind of wandered into the in incredible string band as, as ostensibly as a girlfriend. And she wasn't a musician, but she ended up playing bass and she toured and she played Woodstock. And she's written this brilliant Frank book about what it was like to be a woman at that time. And also the other three members of the incredible string band all become Scientologists in the early seventies. And she didn't. And she's really kind of uh, rightfully scathing of themselves losing, of them kind of losing themselves in this religious cult. 
And uh, that was published just a couple of years ago by the excellent uh, indie publisher, Stranger Tractor. Um, mm. So yeah, Muse Odalisque Handmaiden, I would, I would recommend. And I'm also a big fan, finally, of Get in the Van by Henry Rollins, which yes. is his <laughs> Black Flag tour journals. It's a beautiful book with loads of photographs. And it just really shows you what it was like to tour in a in a, in a band in the early 80s in America before that established kind of alternative circuit was was there this was like the 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 sort of foundations were being laid for dinosaur junior and nirvana and everything pixies and sonic youth but this is like the beginning of that the drudgery the poverty the violence the cynicism and all told through Henry Rollins's kind of uncompromising but quite poetic prose. So that's another personal favourite. Oh, fantastic. What a selection of books. Oh, I love Henry Rollins. One of my favourite interviews ever. Really lovely guy. <laughs> kind of he terrifying, is a lovely. But lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, funny how the most terrifying interviewees um, are also very lovely people. Mark Lanigan it was very lovely. Um, but uh, yeah. I really want to... I think I'm going to have to try and borrow that book about uh, the the crazed pasta. I've got a couple of books like that that I've picked up over the years in secondhand shops. You know the, uh, you know the how rock and roll is the devil's work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, made by little little print printing presses, and um, I love all that stuff. Thank you so much um, um, for those books. Um, and finally, um, this is the part of the uh, podcast where we ask our guests for are their book song. Now we've got an amazing playlist of these this is a song inspired by a work of literature or a writer um interpret it as you will what have you got for us ben well i i, I kind of find myself harking back to my teenage years and i scribbled down a list and i ran through a few ideas and then discarded them the first one was going to be motorcycle emptiness by the manix which is inspired by rumblefish the book by se hinton yeah. which was a film but i didn't go for that and then i thought pet cemetery by the ramones uh Stephen King book and then I thought no killing an Arab by the cure but that's already been chosen um and then I, and then I discovered I did what your former guest Leah Saudi from Fat White Family did which was Google <laughs> songs inspired by books <laughs> and I learned that it's everybody terrible. well you know yes yeah. <laughs> blank so I learned that everybody's happy nowadays by Buzzcocks was actually takes its title from Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. But I've got two choices, and, and I thought I'd let you choose which one you want on the song playlist. Um, the first is Absolute Beginners by Bowie, because oh, I yeah. I love that novel by Colin McInnes, and it was like it was something I read alongside England's Dreaming as a teenager, and it just made me want to move to London, which I did. Uh, and I've also chosen um, what... Uh, Something that might stand out on the playlist, but it's won by Metallica, um, which is inspired by a book called Johnny Get Your Gun, which is about a war veteran who basically is severely injured. And anyone who's seen the video for one, it's a very haunting song and video. He's basically a disembodied head trapped in his own mind. Uh, and it's, it's, I'm not a huge Metallica fan, but I thought, I think they kind of defined something in the 80s. This, thrash metal and i have a friend another music journalist called simon young who's the same age as me 
getting into his late 40s and he has been traumatized by that video since he was about 13 and he still references it most weeks just the sheer horror of the song and the video psychologically did something to him so <laughs> i wanted to uh disturb him one more time by mentioning it so my choice <laughs> would be the cool one absolute beginners or the kind of frantic thrash metal one would be one by metallica so I've got a problem here because um, I, the journalist in me, the presenter in me wants Metallica, obviously. Um, but I, the only the other night I was played absolute beginners um, in the kitchen while um, I was finished off dinner and said to my husband, this is my favourite Bowie song, I think. It's, a it's an ongoing debate in my own head. What's my favourite Bowie song? Not that it actually matters, um, but there's something about absolute beginners coming out in that period, which isn't. A brilliant period for Bowie, you know, and, um, but he writes this song that is just the perfect song. I wish it was the first song at our wedding, but it wasn't. There we are. I I'm going to put them both in. I'm going to shove them both in. It's the last episode of the series. Let's get them both right. in there. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. I don't know the Metallica one, and I ugh, I, I kind of want to watch the video now, but um, maybe I need to uh, yeah, prepare I'll, myself a bit. I'll, I would say watch it. The, the book is called Johnny Get Your Gun by Dalton Trumbo. Uh, or Dalton Trumbo, I think. Dalton Palumbo, something like that. Uh, and I haven't read about it, but I've heard about it so much. And the song is like probably the first mainstream thrash metal song, really. It was a bit of a hit for Metallica before they were huge. And it's really well put together and it's dark and it's heavy. And it's got this amazing kind of drum break in the middle. So I I'm not I'm not normally a person to recommend Metallica to people because I've got some issues with the way they've conducted their career and sued their own fans and things like that. But mm. back in more innocent times, they released <laughs> it. And, you know, it's, it's worth a, definitely worth a listen. They released this very sweet and lovely song, which we're going to finish off the playlist with, with a big, uh, you know, gentle flourish. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thanks for them both. And thanks for being my guest today. It's been lovely to have you on. Thank you for having me. And do everybody, um, I do buy Cuddy, which is out now. Ben's other books are also available. Um, Beastings, Gallows Pole, all fantastic. Um, it's been lovely to have uh, have you on today, Ben. Um, and thank you all for listening to this episode and indeed this series. Um, songbook episodes are up now from seasons one and two on Apple Podcasts and many other streaming services. Please like and subscribe um, and hopefully we'll see you soon. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production. Presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson. Editor Dan Jones. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.